This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with the California recall election scheduled for September 14. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of UC Berkeley School of Law and constitutional scholar, argues that the rules of the recall violate constitutional principles. This is an incredibly consequential election, and a lawsuit has been filed compelling the courts to intervene and either prohibit the election or change the rules. We'll get Erwin Chemerinsky's understanding and explanation. We then turn to the end of the American occupation of Afghanistan, a 20-year intervention that ended in defeat for the United States. Anthropologists Nancy Lindisfarne and Jonathan Neal did fieldwork in Afghanistan, and their just-published article, Afghanistan, the End of the Occupation, is a cogent analysis of Afghan society, the evolution of the Taliban from 2001 to 2021, the nature of their support, as well as the challenges ahead. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Erwin Chemerinsky back with us. He's the Dean of Berkeley Law, a constitutional scholar and distinguished professor. And he's joining us to elaborate and explain something that is incredibly important and urgent. And that is California's recall election, which is scheduled for September 14th. Ballots are already out. And Irwin has published, along with Professor Edlin, an op-ed or guest essay in the New York Times and says that this recall, as it is right now, is unconstitutional. And a lawsuit has been filed compelling the courts to intervene and to declare this recall election procedure unconstitutional because it violates a core constitutional principle that every voter should have an equal ability to influence the outcome of an election. And the lawsuit advocates a court order that either prohibits the recall election or makes a change in the rules by adding Governor Newsom's name to the replacement candidate list. And that simple change should treat his supporters equally to the others and ensure that if he gets more votes than any other candidate, he will stay in office. And I should have in the beginning also said that the way that the ballot is structured right now has two questions on it. The first is a simple yes or no, should the governor, the sitting governor, be recalled? And if that gets a majority, the second question, which, you know, you don't know how that's going to turn out, but the second question asks voters to choose from a list of replacements, one of which is not the sitting governor. So that kind of explains it. But um, I'm really glad that we have you with us here today, Erwin, because I know you always bring light to these difficult issues. And I should just say, that I forgot to mention that your latest books, in case people want to rush out there, Erwin has written 14 or 15 books, but the most recent ones are Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. That came out this year. This week. This week. The publication date is August 24th. So that's, I have to get it, and then I'm going to invite you back to talk about that. I'd love to. I would, too. And then the other book that came out last year is The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. 
And the op-ed that we're talking about is called, There's a Problem with California's Recall. It's unconstitutional. Well, that couldn't be clear, but perhaps, Erwin, you can just begin by explaining the current rules of the recall and why you say these rules violate constitutional principles. Of course. And thank you again so much for having me on. As you explained, there's two questions on the same ballot. The first is whether or not Gavin Newsom should be recalled as governor. If more than half the people vote to recall him, he's out. And at the same time, we vote on who would be the successor. Whoever gets the most votes, even though it be far less than half, becomes the governor. Well, I think everyone agrees that if Gavin Newsom loses this recall, it's going to be very close. He'll probably end up with 48 or 49 percent if he loses. On the other hand, all of the opinion polls show that whoever's going to replace him isn't going to end up with much more than 18 to 20 percent of the vote. Well, think about this in terms of simple numbers. If 10 million people voted and Gavin Newsom got 49 percent, that's 4.9 million votes. If the, whoever succeeds him gets, say, 18 percent of that, that's 1.8 million votes. So it would be 4.9 million people want Gavin Newsom and 1.8 million people want whoever replaces him, and yet the latter becomes the governor. It's that that Aaron Edlin, I argue, is unconstitutional. Well, let me ask you before we go further into that, are these rules, the rules that govern the California recall process, unique to California within the United States? Or, or Yes, they're yes. unique to California. <laughs> they're in the California Constitution. They're over a century old. Only once before has a governor been recalled, and that was 2003 when Gray Davis was recalled. But what we described didn't happen there. Gray Davis ended up with about 43% when he was there as governor, and 45% roughly when Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. So in that instance, the candidate preferred by the most people became governor. If Newsom is recalled this time, that's not going to happen. There's no candidate polling in the 40s among the 46 candidates on the ballot to succeed Newsom. And there's no one with the celebrity stature of Arnold Schwarzenegger, at least that we see so far, so or that are on the ballot. But the complaint that is filed in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California states that the recall provision violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution by allowing sitting governors to be replaced by candidates who have received fewer votes. And of course, I'd like you to just explain that a little bit more. You just said it in terms of the raw numbers, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what that means in terms of the Equal Protection Clause. The Supreme Court has said that equal protection requires that every person have the same chance to determine the outcome of the election. This is often referred to as the principle of one person, one vote. For example, imagine that there were two different congressional districts in California, and one had twice as many people as another. The Supreme Court would declare that unconstitutional because people in California wouldn't have the same chance to decide who's going to be their representative. Or imagine two state Senate districts, and one had many more people than another. The court said that's unconstitutional because they don't have the same chance to influence who's going to be their state senator. Well, that's exactly what we have here. 
if one candidate gets 18%, becomes governor, and Gavin Newsom got 49%, and remember, it's all on the same ballot, that would mean that those who have chosen the governor have three times more weight to their votes than those who wanted Gavin Newsom. And that's, I think, the point of the lawsuit you mentioned. I am not part of that lawsuit. I've not spoken to the lawyers. And I think that there are other lawsuits that may be in the works to go right to the California Supreme Court. Well, I want to ask you, Erwin, to talk about further implications of that. But that would take us a little bit afield from this particular situation. So I want to first go back over that. And you, in your op-ed piece with Professor Aaron Edlin, cite certain cases that bolster your argument, you know, in terms of talking about the unconstitutionality of California's recall. So could you go over some of the case law that you did in that essay and explain them? Of course, actually I did just now, but without mentioning the name of the cases. These were decisions in the early 1960s that challenged the malapportionment of state legislatures. And what occurred was that there'd be, say, a state Senate where you'd have a district with 50,000 people and then another district with the same body with 200,000 people. The legislature wasn't going to change that because those who benefited from malapportionment were going to vote themselves out of office. But one district would have people with four times more the say and influence in picking a state senator than the other. And it's in the cases that we mentioned in the article, cases like Reynolds versus Sims and Westbury versus Sanders, that the Supreme Court announced this rule, one person, one vote. And what we're saying is, If it turns out that Gavin Newsom gets 49% to stay in office, but his successor gets 18%, then that violates the principle of one person, one vote. Okay, this is really interesting because there are wider implications, right? You're talking about equal district representation, essentially. Is that, am I right? And that's what the Supreme Court has held now for a half century that for any legislative body, All districts must be at the same in population. So take the Los Angeles City Council. There are 15 districts. Each must be about the same in population. If we had a situation where one district had four times more people than another, then the latter district, each voter, would get four times more influence over who was going to be the city council representative. That's why all the districts have to be the same. And what we're saying is, Gavin Newsom should be treated the same as all the other candidates. If a simple plurality is enough to win, whoever gets the most votes, if he gets more votes than anybody else, he should be able to stay as governor. So that gets to the inherent unfairness of the way that this ballot is structured, right? And so we should probably go on then to the second question. And keeping in mind, because I think you you state and the lawsuit states that a change in the rules could rectify the situation by allowing Governor Newsom's name to be on the list of replacements. But as the ballot that has gone out, he is not there. And they said that he cannot be there because he's the one that's being you know, recalled. So how does that work? And what possibility is there, given that the ballots are already out, that this could be changed? The easiest solution would have been just let Gavin Newsom's name appear on the second question. And if he got more votes than anybody else, let him stay in office. Even on the first question, people want to recall him. It's not as irrational as it sounds. 
people could vote on the first question to send a message to Gavin Newsom, but say, okay, having sent the message, I still like him better than all of the other candidates. Often when we vote in elections, we are picking what we regard as the least bad choice, but we're still doing that, and that could be here. Failing that, a second option would be a court could say, if Newsom ends up with more votes to stay in office than any candidate gets to replace him, Newsom gets to remain. So if Newsom gets 4.9 million and the leading candidate against him gets 1.8 million, the court could say Gavin Newsom stays. It's conceivable that a court could say, let's stop the recall right now. Let's print new ballots and start all over again. That would be quite chaotic. Another possibility would be to say the first vote should go forward, whether Gavin Newsom should be recalled. If so, he'll be replaced by the lieutenant governor rather than be replaced by one of the people on the second ballot. It's not irrational in the sense that if a governor leaves office for any other reason, who replaces the governor? The lieutenant governor. Is that the law right now? Let's say that, you know, the governor dies or commits some heinous crime that would remove him from office. Wouldn't it automatically go to the lieutenant governor? And why is this different? You're exactly (laughs) right. If the governor leaves office for any reason, except for recall, the lieutenant governor succeeds the governor, much as if a president leaves office, the vice president takes over. The only exception to that is the California Constitution provides if there's a recall election, then the person to succeed the governor is the person who gets the most votes on what we're calling the second ballot. Well, there's all kinds of problems about that, and and you've cited many of them, Erwin Chemerinsky, and that this is also specific to California. Other states may have recalls, but they have a higher threshold, let's say, of signatures required to put it on the ballot. And many are saying because California is so preponderantly Democratic that Republicans have no choice to get elected except by challenging the elected person in what is a way to do a, a redo of the election. Given that something catastrophic could literally happen, even though uh, there's only, what, a, a year and, and some left in Gavin Newsom's first term. Should the recall go through? Do you think that we should amend, you know, not just the recall process, but sort of everything, you know, that surrounds it? Yes. Let me start by saying the stakes are enormously high. Let me give a single example. Diane Feinstein is 88 years old. Imagine that something were to happen and she were to leave the Senate between the time the new governor takes over and January of 2023, when the next governor will be inaugurated. It's the governor who picks the replacement when there's a vacancy in terms of a senator leaving office. Well, if it's a Republican governor, it's a Republican would be picked to replace Dianne Feinstein. That not only means that California would have a Republican senator, but it would change the political composition of the Senate, the Republicans would take control of the United States Senate. That's not an impossible scenario to imagine. Think also of all of the judges and state officials that a governor would appoint over the next 16 months. So this election is really crucial. Now, I disagree with the premise of what you said, that the only way a Republican could be elected as governor is through this process. The Republicans can have someone elected if they choose a candidate who's in accord with the views of the voters. 
I mean, it's not that long ago we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, as governor. It's not that long before that we had George Duke Major and Pete Wilson as governors. Now, admittedly, the politics of the state have changed, but the Republicans don't have to pick pro-Trump candidates who don't have much residence in California. They could pick much more viable candidates and have a chance to win in the state. But I do think that to answer your direct question, the procedure for the recall needs to be changed. There should be a much higher threshold of signatures that are required. Also, we should get rid of the way in which the ballot is structured that we've been talking about. I really worry about proliferation of recalls. We saw a judge recalled a couple of years ago, Aaron Persky, because people didn't like his ruling in a specific case. It was the first time a judge was recalled in California since the early 1930s. There's a recall campaign going on right now in Los Angeles County with regard to District Attorney George Gascon because the people who opposed him don't like him. And I worry that this is going to be increasing the tool that whenever it's a close election, those who supported the loser will try to do a recall. This is really dangerous, and there's no question about that. So let me ask just in terms of this particular recall, not Gascon or others, but the case is asking the court to intervene to either postpone or, I guess, cancel this, prohibit this recall, or make certain that the rules are changed. But given that the ballots are already out, how do you see that playing out? We don't know what the uh, outcome of this case will be, but... I don't think the court will order at this stage that Newsom be put on the ballot. I don't think the court will order at this stage a stopping of the recall election. But there's other things the court could do that I mentioned. Say that if Newsom is recalled, lieutenant governor becomes the governor. Or simply say, let's look to who gets the most votes. If Newsom gets more votes to stay in office than any candidate gets to replace him, Newsom then remains as governor. So in that case, you're saying that essentially the court will change the rules of the recall ballot. If the court finds a constitutional violation, as I suggested, then it has to provide a remedy. And what I'm saying is some remedies at this stage aren't very realistic, but there are realistic remedies that a court could impose. What are you doing with your ballot on the second question or not what you or what, what recommendation do we have? I've heard many people say that we should leave the second question blank if we oppose the recall. I disagree with that. If you leave the second question blank, you are then leaving the choice to those who vote. It's always the case if you don't vote, you're leaving the choice to those who do go and vote. There are some really awful candidates from my perspective among the 46 who are running. There are some who are, in my view, less bad, though they wouldn't be my first choice for governor. So I'm going to vote for somebody on the second question. Um, I read an article this week by somebody who I respect who said, we'll leave the second question blank so somebody terrible will get elected so they have no chance of winning re-election in November of 2022. I understand that rationale, but it would then mean we've got that person as governor between now and January 2023. And that's not what I want to risk. 
And it's also, as you say, dangerous because should there be any appointments that governor could exercise his right to appoint, then we're in real trouble. So final, final question, because we are really out of time is, can you write in a candidate or is that not a good idea? Could we write in, for example, Newsom? You can't write in Newsom because the Constitution, I think, makes clear that if somebody's recalled, they're not eligible to be reelected in this election. You can always write somebody in, but the reality is, unless it were a widespread write-in candidate, it's essentially the same as not voting. Because who you and I choose to write in isn't going to be able to get enough votes to make a difference. Erwin Chimerinsky, as always, you've really clarified the situation. So the recall ballot is out, everyone. There are two questions on it. There's a challenge to its constitutionality. But in any case, fill that ballot out and by all means, fill in the second question as well. Wow. All right. Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the School of Law at UC Berkeley and author of many books, the latest one just out this week. Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. We'll come back to that. But thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Nancy Lindisfarne and Jonathan Neal with us for the very first time. We're going to be talking about the end of the Afghan fiasco, the end of the occupation. And the U.S. has now finally, it says, ended its war and 20-year occupation of Afghanistan in defeat. 775,000 troops, U.S. troops fought in Afghanistan, and maybe they'll be able to fill us in on how many British troops were there. 2,448 were killed, along with 4,000 U.S. contractors. 20,000, perhaps 600, were wounded in action, according to the Defense Department. And, of course, we famously know that Afghan casualties were not counted by the U.S. occupying forces, but they are estimated to be between 47,000 and 100,000 noncombatants, and perhaps three times that many more wounded. We know that a trillion dollars was spent on a war that the American generals admitted, and this is a quote, that they had not the foggiest notion of what they were undertaking or who was the enemy. This was revealed in the Afghanistan papers published in 2019 by the Washington Post, which specified that the U.S. had never been able to specify a goal for the intervention in Afghanistan. For Afghans, the American withdrawal marks the end of 43 years of war, although the conflict for Afghanistan's young population, average age about 18, and for Afghan women and others is ongoing. And a refugee crisis also looms. So I'm really pleased that we can have Nancy Lindisfarne and Jonathan Neal with us. They've written a very cogent analysis called The End of the Occupation that was published online at AnnieBonniePirate.org. But Nancy Lindisfarne did field work with Pashtun women and men in the north of the country in the 1970s and has published two books explaining the class, gender and ethnic divisions of that time. They are both expat Americans who've been living in the UK for 50 years. Nancy's first degree is in anthropology in the States, and then she moved to the UK and did 
anthropological work in Afghanistan, also in Iran, Turkey, and Syria, and taught for many years at SOAS, or the School of Oriental and Africa Studies in London. And I mentioned she has several books, Bartered Brides, Politics and Gender and Marriage in an Afghan Tribal Society, and also recently a book with Richard Tapper called Afghan Village Voices, published in 2020. And Jonathan Neal, is also an anthropologist, got his degree from the LSE in London, and also did field work in Afghanistan, and then went on to study naval mutinies and labor history. He's best known now as a writer and climate activist, and his books include Fight the Fire, Green New Deals, and Global Climate Jobs, that came out just in February, and also People's History of the Vietnam War, What's Wrong with America, and Tigers of the Snow, A History of Sherpa climbers. And so just that sort of eclectic series of titles will probably give you some indication of how adventurous they both are. And we hopefully maybe we'll get to some of that. But first, I want to welcome you both to the program. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thanks. So let's just begin with your article, Afghanistan, the end of the occupation that was published on the 17th of August, I think. You state your basic conclusions, and I'll just state them and then we'll go back. The Taliban have defeated the United States. The Taliban have won because they have more popular support. The Taliban have preponderance of popular support in Afghanistan, not because Afghans love the Taliban, but because the American occupation has been unbearably cruel and corrupt. The majority of Americans are in favor of withdrawal from Afghanistan and against any more foreign wars. So really what we're going to do now is give you the opportunity to spell all of that out. And I hope to go over them one by one. So let's begin with this Taliban victory and what it fundamentally means. So that would mean, I guess, the basics of what happened, the evolution of the Taliban, U.S. military and political conflict from 2001 until 2021. And you summarize that history by calling it a Taliban military victory and a Taliban political victory. So could you begin by giving us a capsule specification of each of those? In 2001... After 9-11, after the Twin Towers, the United States invaded Afghanistan. And the government of Afghanistan was the Taliban. And they had, it's very important, very, very little popular support. They were the government. But when the United States invaded, almost no Afghans were willing to fight. For uh, anybody. For anybody. (laughs) Nancy's right. They weren't willing to fight for the Taliban. And they weren't willing to fight for the American allies against the Taliban. They wanted peace. The whole country wanted peace. And the battles that were supposed to happen just didn't happen because Afghans wouldn't fight. And this is very embarrassing for the United States military. And they made a peace deal brokered by Pakistan. The peace deal was that the Taliban would go home, would go back to their villages or into exile. And the Americans would take Kabul and put their man Karzai in as president. And very important. For two or three years after that, there was no resistance to the Americans at all. Think of the difference with Iraq, where the resistance started on day one of the American invasion. And you go into that, too, by talking about the Yeah, or when the Russians invaded Afghanistan in the 1980s, the Soviets invaded. There was resistance from day one. But when the Taliban fell, there was no resistance, not even in the very strongly Taliban areas, because 
were sure. It's because Afghans wanted peace. They'd already had 23 years of war. They wanted peace. And they thought America was a rich country and would bring them development. They were enormously hopeful. And they'd had an economy which was perfectly reasonable in the 60s and 70s, as was basically the rest of the world that was developing at that time. They could imagine going back there. That was very much associated with the West, with America and so on. And so they were hopeful and mistakenly. And then two things happened. One was that the American military waged war on the people in southern Afghanistan looking for the bad guys. Nobody really told the Pentagon that the deal had been done, that the Taliban could go home. And they searched them and they took them away from their families at night and they tortured them, killed some of them, tortured them. And then their relatives would take a few revenge shots at an American base. More people would be arrested and tortured. And then there would be more shooting from the Afghan village. And then the American units would bring in the bombers, the air support. And village by village, valley by valley. That's how you create a guerrilla war. It's how you create a guerrilla yeah. war. <laughs> and that's what happened. And the other thing was that there wasn't development. There was massive corruption, massive inequality. Almost from the beginning. And it was a honeypot for NGOs, for people, many of them of goodwill, but are actually sucked into an occupation where there are vast sums of money being poured in, particularly by the military, but in many other frames as well, opium and so on. And the result was that the only people who were root and branch opposed to the American occupation were the Taliban. And once they began to resist, they were the only people resisting. And that meant that as people turned against the American occupation in the villages, they joined the Taliban. And by this process, by recruiting local people, the Taliban took control of most of the villages over a period of many years. And the Taliban got really smart. They had started off as Pashtun chauvinists, which was very, very unsuccessful, stupid, frankly, in a country with so many different kinds of ethnic divisions and so forth. They learned and they became very, very savvy in terms of sourcing arms, in terms of using the internet, and in terms of changing the kind of ethos, what they were fighting for. And that was part of why they could persuade villagers right across the country who were not necessarily Pashtuns or perhaps even had been formerly hostile to Pashtuns and Pashtun chauvinism. And the other thing was that they were fair. They had judges who were honest. We both lived in Afghanistan. The whole legal system of the whole country was corrupt, and it had been corrupt for centuries. (laughs) And these were the first people, the Taliban, were the first people in the history of Afghanistan who had honest judges. And what that honest judge meant was that if there was a poor family up in court, it's the rich family, and the poor family was in the right, the judges ruled for the poor family. Uh, This was a level playing field. They never had a level playing field before. So this felt like the Taliban weren't socialists. They weren't communists. They were nothing of the sort, but they were fair. Actually, an Afghan friend of ours in England was telling us quite recently, but this actually goes back many years before this, of how families that would squabble over land in eastern Afghanistan They could take things to a civil court, but that would mean bribery. It would mean endless kind of delays and all the rest of it. And even though there weren't a group of Taliban judges, a court that they 
locally, they would go out and find this Taliban judge. And both of the sides in this dispute would actually agree to whatever settlement, whatever decision she was arrived at. So it's an extraordinary expectation, which we hope they might be able to live up to. That's something about the future. But this doesn't mean it's wrong to say most Afghans supported the Taliban. That is exactly my next question, because you actually say in your paper that supports the wrong word. And you say that, in fact, the U.S. delivered war, not peace, and the Taliban delivered peace, not war in that first period, and that the Afghan people had to choose between the Taliban and the American occupiers. So I guess that sort of begins there, that they were at the start hoping to be able to support the Americans, but over time found themselves unable to do so. Is that fair? And of course, please. It's, it's, yeah, but not just the Taliban. It's the Afghan people found themselves increasingly supporting the Taliban, whether or not they started feeling that way, because it wasn't a matter who you supported. It was choices. You make a choice in a war situation. The choice was, do you support the American occupation with all of the torture and all the cruelty, do you support the warlords, the old Mujahideen Islamist warlords, deeply corrupt, widely hated? Do you support the new government in Kabul that is incredibly corrupt, incredibly unequal society? Or do you choose the Taliban? You you have to choose a side. Now, lots and lots of Afghans, they... They don't like the sexism and misogyny of the Taliban. (laughs) They don't like the fact that these people are quite hardcore religious people (laughs) because Afghans are not historically just at all necessarily. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but um, it's also about survival. You forget about what a war does and climate change, which we also mentioned at some point, which becomes very important. It is a desperately poor country. It has always been so. And if you add then the years and years of war, people just simply to feed themselves are going to compromise. They're going to have to make decisions. They're going to have to change their mind. They're going to have to move from this place to that place to actually survive, to protect their children. And I think it becomes enormously important to remember how very desperate that population will have been through this period until very recently. And now there again is a small space for hope. And one of the things we say is that because of the changing political situation, this was also a military victory for the Taliban. That's very important. What it means is that even when the Americans had many more soldiers, the Americans were constantly losing ground. And after the Americans wound down, the Afghan government army was losing more killed and wounded than it was recruiting. And the police forces. And the police, same for the police forces. So when people say Joe Biden should have done this or he should have done that, when the other side is winning a war, (laughs) your choices are you leave or you surrender or you die. Those are the three choices when the other side is winning a military victory. And the Taliban were winning. Of course, would anything have changed if he had left now or in 10 years from now or five years before? If he left 10 years from now, if he tried to hang on another year, all of the American troops left in Afghanistan would have been killed. All would have surrendered and gone into a prisoner of war camp. 
Both of those would have been catastrophically humiliating for American power. (laughs) That was the option. So do you think, before we go into the nature of the U.S. occupation and how over time, as you could say, perhaps the desire for peace on the part of the Afghan people and the look of hope toward the Americans thinking that perhaps they would help them be lifted out of poverty and decades of conflict. Before we go into that, this would probably be the place, Nancy, is to go back to what Afghanistan was like in the years before these conflicts began? Because I think somebody else said, too, that they lived for 300 years in peace or something like that. I don't know if that's That's how- probably not the case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a misunderstanding. Okay. But we would all wish, I suppose. I think, as I said, the 60s, the country was prospering. There was development, but there was also enormous tension between, it was at that point, a pseudo-proxy war between the Soviets on one hand, and the American aid, which was actually operating in the southern part of the country and so forth. So there was a competition. And that was problematic because on both sides, it was being managed and manipulated and benefited from by a monarchy, a very unequal society. And because of the 60s, which were not different in Afghanistan in some ways than they were in the United States or any place else, people were hopeful, people moved to the left, people wanted change. They wanted a fair society. And in that respect, the Afghans, and particularly Afghan communists, but a whole range of people on the progressive side, wanted to get rid of the monarchy, wanted a more equal society, let's put it that way. And there was then a palace coup. Mm -hmm. And then after this five, six years, I suppose, of struggle internally, Mm -hmm. and then then a full-scale communist coup. But it was a coup the communists did with quite a lot of support in the cities, but not much support in the countryside. And most people lived in the countryside. So there was a rising in the countryside, led by mullahs and Islamists, a rising against the communists. The communists kept losing ground, and the Soviet Union, appalled, invaded to support the communists. And then the communists became the creatures of the Soviet invasion, and everybody turned against them. Mm. And that was a terrible tragedy, because when I lived in Afghanistan, the people I admired most were the communists. Mm. I thought they were very brave. They were women and men dedicated to women's liberation, To land reform. To land reform, to getting the peasants enough to eat. I admired them, but they became the the creatures of the torturers. And people people turned against them and turned against land reform and turned against feminism. But the Russian occupation also so instantly brutal, unbelievably brutal. It's really interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to interject here because at the time of the Soviet invasion and occupation, I did several programs on it way back then. And I remember Fred Halliday came on and he said, well, the communists in power will create a centralized government and stop a nomadic society and allow time for development. And I thought that was the most hopeful thing that he said, but he mentioned nothing about, you know, how hated that government became over time. So he was kind of on the wrong side. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So go from there. The Soviet invasion, you know, which the U S was very happy to have them bogged down for what an eight year war. Yes. I think one needs to frame this by also remembering the position of the Soviet union at this time, the 
the Cold War competition, the fact that they have all these Central Asian republics, which are majority Muslim. And if you suddenly have Muslim fighters against you, you you create an anti-Muslim it becomes a war which is to stereotype and to create hatred of Muslims and to create fear from a Western Soviet population. Sorry, I mean, in the Western parts of the Soviet Union against these people from the East. So it does many, many different jobs, the Russians, the Soviets thought. And not to mention a distraction from the Polish workers' uprising. Uh, There were a lot of things happening at the time that made it propitious, let's say, for the Soviets to distract their own population. (laughs) Including the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran. But I also think for the story of what's happened to Afghanistan today, the really important thing is roughly a million Afghans were killed in that war with the Soviets, roughly a million out of a population of 20 million, mostly by airplane bombing. Another one to two million were maimed for life. Cluster bombs. Uh, Six million were driven into exile in other countries, and about three or four million were driven into internal exile. This isn't a population of 20 million. This is, I can't remember, we did the numbers for the United States, Uh but it's, it's... It's the equivalent of having, I can't remember, 12 million or 24 million dead in America Mm. after a foreign invasion. And if the people who were socialists and the people who were feminists lined up with the the invaders who killed on that scale, um, nobody would have any time for socialists or feminists. Right. (laughs) We do have to move along a little bit because I want to get to the rest of what's in your article in helping to understand the evolution of people's attitudes toward the Taliban and to the U.S. occupation. So you both brought up or at least mentioned the issues of corruption, inequality, and of course, the lack of, you know, that they had had previously honest and fair judges, but at least now, uh, what the Americans brought was instead of lifting everybody up, allowed for incredible corruption. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and about then what is it about the Taliban that seemed less bad or more attractive? Well, I think you have to, I mean, maybe start with the American stereotypes. I mean, these are not savages. They are my brother or your cousin or the person who lives down the road. So you I mean, you compare those stereotypes, you compare the kind of the night raids and things like this, the kind of treatment of people that you know. This is very important in understanding why people responded the way they did. And And it's an army of poor peasant people, poor farmers. You can tell by looking at them. Both of us, me and Nancy, when we look at their pictures, (laughs) we say these look just like the people that we did field work with <laughs> Nancy in the north, me in the east of the country. So these are poor people. Does um, it matter and, that, you know, let me, let me just yeah. ask here, because if you look at the map that, you know, the Americans like to provide of who's Pashtun and who is, which ones are other ethnicities. And that seemed to matter a lot after 2001, but now it seems that they're more, what, multi-ethnic or at least uh, uh, multi-ethnic in supporting 
that there's more ethnicity supporting the Taliban. Let's put it that way. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about that so we can get that to understand these peasants. I think one of the important things is to go back to, oh, the book and the fieldwork that I did with Richard Tapper, where we're living in a very multi-ethnic, multilingual area of Afghanistan. And one of the things people shuffled along, I mean, there were differences and there were histories of, of and baggage and all the rest of it, but basically they shuffled along. What we noticed, Richard and I, was the numbers of academic articles that would actually spin out the ethnicities, the differences, and so forth. And this was part of an American project when I said earlier there was the Cold War kind of competition with the Soviet Union at that time. Part of what the Americans were doing systematically, and I think the Russians as well, was dividing and ruling along ethnic lines. So they were setting up this kind of dynamic. And Richard Knight actually written a number of articles saying, whoa, this is problematic. And I think it's also something that's there that's more important sometimes and less important sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what Nancy said before about the Taliban the first time around when they were the government before 2001, they were very much a government of Pashtuns for Pashtuns. Huh. And lots of the other ethnic groups rebelled against them. And they learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now they go on and on again and again about uniting everybody. But maybe there's one group of people who are the poorest group of people in the central mountains called the Zaras who yes. haven't really been drawn into this this coalition and they may have a terrible time. And if the economy gets very, very, very bad in Afghanistan in the future, these with, divisions will these rise. divisions will rise again. Uh-huh. It's um, Let me ask you a question about people, that because that goes into you know what others are saying is the one thing that's happened over this twenty years of U.S invasion and occupation is that there was a lot of money and a lot of it was siphoned off into corruption. But if the new government now, you know, wants the economy, well, the question would be, I guess, is can the economy improve and what resources will they have now that presumably the U S purse is cut off? And so, no, 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 it's more than it's well, we understand it's, it's much worse than that. It's the punitive response of the bad losers who punished in Vietnam, who Mm. punished elsewhere, who punished in Iraq. And we understand that the Afghan funds, the country's central bank, the funds that have been held, what is it, how many trillion? No, it's seven billion, which is a lot of money for Afghans. Okay, sorry, whatever, I thought it was (laughs) trillion. Anyway, has actually been frozen so that the people who are going to take over the government have no longer access to their own legitimate funds. Forget about corruption. Forget about anything else. And this is an act of revenge, if you will, a calculated act that is going on. It happened in Iran after the Islamic Revolution and so forth. And it's very, very problematic because what else do people live on? For instance, there is a threat now coming from the Republicans in Congress, but it may may be supported by the Biden administration, maybe not, to put economic sanctions on the Taliban, which mean the charities that try to go into Afghanistan to help people with food and with medicine will be punished by the American Federal Reserve Bank so that they cannot do this. Afghanistan is already a very, very poor country. It will not be hard for the United States government, if they want to, to force them into economic crisis. Mm. There's There's also very bad climate change in that part of the world, and there is a new drought beginning. 
if the United States is hostile, things are going to get very bad in a place that is already very poor. And at that point, people turn on each other. They turn on each other, but they, they also become a good place for a proxy war. And I think that's another part of the fears that we have, desperate fears for what happens next. So I was going to say that many of the generals and others, commentators who are very upset with what Biden has done, have said, well, now there's going to be an opening for the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. And of course, you know, they don't say it, but for the Chinese, the Iranians uh, and others who may step into the void, I think that's, I don't know what you think of it. I, I, I don't know how likely that would be, except economically, perhaps. But maybe you could just address a little bit this one issue about how the Taliban, you know, as you've said, have learned that the chauvinism they had before was a weakness, so that they now emphasize that they want the support of all Muslims. You also mentioned the Hazaris, which are a Shia people, whereas the Taliban are Sunni, and, and there's also Christians there. How much of that divide will exist or does exist in Afghanistan? Afghanistan. And finally, the other issue is what the Taliban are saying today, uh, that they'll respect the rights of women. Nobody seems to believe that, you know, and that they, uh, I think others have said, well, these aren't the same Taliban. They have, they have access to social media. The population is young. It's a different generation. Those are a lot of questions, but go ahead. (laughs) People change, don't they? I mean, people change. And if they're smart politically, they learn fast. And I think in these circumstances, what you have seen is a group of people who've been utterly committed to get rid of this occupation, these ugly occupiers, and have learned enormously quickly. And there are other examples of this kind of response to really extraordinary oppression. But I think the ecumenical sort of aspect of this is perfectly plausible. It is also terribly important to remember that, again, as we talk about Hazars and Pashtuns or Aymaks and Uzbeks, we also have to understand that the Sunni-Shia divide, which has been there historically almost from the beginning of Islam, has been exacerbated, ratcheted up, by different rulers at different times. And I hate to say it, but this is one of the consequences of the Islamic revolution in Iran, is that that division was then greatly exaggerated and was played out in the most ugly way we've seen in Iraq. So again, heaven help the poor Afghans, heaven help the Hazars, because they are also in the poorest and most desperate part of the country, and they have been historically oppressed. Nobody's pretending other. So the magnanimity that will be required of a government and the actual funds to support people in those circumstances and bring them on board will be something of a miracle. I also think, yes, America stepping out, it's a weakening of American power. But the big powers who are Afghanistan's neighbors all very much want peace in Afghanistan. They want the peace to work for very different reasons, Russia, Uzbekistan, Iran, China, Pakistan, none of them wants a horror show in Afghanistan. So they may well step in to try and make sure the economy works. They're they're giving every indication. And that means that America is out of the picture. But as we say elsewhere, Americans these days are not very keen on America being a great power. It hasn't (laughs) done American people a lot of good. The other thing, though, is about al-Qaeda and... Islamic State. Islamic State and the Taliban are enemies. 
Mm. And they disagree. The fundamental issues that they're enemies on are should people persecute Shias mm. or should Muslims live together? And also the the Taliban deeply disapprove of the kind of style of sexual exploitation that the Islamic State do. That's they're not like that. They're the sexist, but they're modesty sexism. Yeah. They're Vice President Pence sort of sexism. The, <laughs> but also the thing about respecting the rights of women, yes, they will respect the legal rights of women, but they are deeply sexist. This is a tragedy of the history. They are deeply sexist because the people who are feminists like us were on the wrong side. Well, I think we were on the wrong side. We were, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I get it. But this raises the question, I guess this is really, you know, sort of the last question to ask you, and that is that, you know, today – U.S. is making a real helter-skelter retreat and thousands upon thousands of Afghan supporters of the Americans are trying to either get protection or to leave. So we should probably talk a little bit about what that support is. And today I read something, I've already forgotten where I read it, that saying that because women are in danger, I think this came from a poet, that perhaps the Americans should evacuate all the women from Afghanistan, which is, of course, patently, you know, impossible. But on the other hand, could you speak to that a little bit? Because on one report, I heard the Afghans saying that women will still be able to work. They'll still be able to have education through high school or, you know, they always make a qualification. So there's a bunch of issues there. I think these are smart people and they understand that to have political support, they are going to have to have the support of people's mothers and sisters and wives and daughters. And nobody is going to support them, fight for them. No no man is going to do that if the women are attacked. So understand that very basic thing about human society. I think that's one of the things that has been lost in the spin about Afghan women or saving Afghan women as an excuse for the occupation. But to take it further and to look at the refugees, absolutely men and women who have been compromised by the American occupation, who have been caught up perhaps working for an NGO because it's the job they could get, men and women, they ought to be protected, they ought to be ferried out to someplace, they ought to be actually given a place in the United States with a passport and money to settle sensibly. And the people who worked for the American army Mm. and all the other armies who came in and all the embassies, but also the people whose lives have been destroyed by war, they should have a place to go to. And the fact (laughs) CNN says they've only got 10,000 Afghans out so far from the airport because they cannot find a country willing to take them. The, the the United States should take those people, and the reason they're not taking them is racism. And it's that the racism is more important to them than Afghan women or democracy or anything else. They're, they're behaving as if racism is the bedrock. And I don't think that's what Americans are like. I don't think that's what Americans want. I think the government should do what most Americans think is the decent thing to do and airlift out everybody who wants to go. And what about the Brits? Do you also, you know, oh put my the God. same pressure on them? Don't start. Don't start. Even worse. Okay. No, I just meant in terms of, I think the government 
has said that they'll welcome 5,000 Afghan refugees, something like that, not a very large number. Considering that this occupation was also, there were also British troops. Very, there. very much in cahoots with the Americans from beginning with Tony Blair, right yeah. there with Bush from the very beginning, benefiting in the same way in terms of political capital. As ugly as it can possibly be, has been very difficult for British Muslims, for instance, has increased the racism within our own country. That's that's a tragedy itself. And British immigration policy is much, much more racist than American. I know that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So let me just ask you finally, I guess, uh, do you have any hope? And one thing about hope, I guess, would be that for Afghans who have been through, as you say, 43 years of war, the absence of war is a big deal. On the other hand, there's a lot of worry. And, and I think you end your paper saying, welcome the refugees. That's what people should do is make campaigns to welcome the refugees. But maybe you could just end on, I guess, what you, it's not, it is impossible to have a crystal ball, but perhaps just your final thoughts on what's going on and what can be done or what you expect. And I know you mentioned climate change, but perhaps that's a whole different program. That's a- I think our hope, I mean, I speak, now, for myself, certainly, I think what we can't see is how the international politics of this tragedy will play out, where the Pakistanis or the Iranians or the Chinese will place themselves vis-a-vis the fall of or the increasing weakness of the American empire. And I think in some ways that may play out to the benefit of the people who are in Afghanistan. I have complete faith in Afghans themselves in sorting themselves out, given the amount of war, given the horror, given the deep humanity of these people who are perfectly capable of understanding differences and resolving conflict. So it's not, my hope is that they can do it if they're left alone or if the juggling act around them politically works in their favor. Yeah. They can do it. 43 years of war. They're praying for peace. Let's us pray for peace, too. (laughs) That's a great place, Dan, and I want to thank both of you, because what you've done is to bring us insight on, you know, what's going on domestically and its own history, not just simply the history of the U.S. intervention and the stereotypes that arose out of that. So I can't thank you enough for bringing your insights and your experience to that. Nancy Lindisfarne and Jonathan Neal, both expat Americans living in Britain, visiting in the U.S. right now, anthropologists who did their field work in Afghanistan, as well as Turkey, Syria, and Iran, which I'd love to hear more about. The books that you should look for are Bartered Brides, Politics, Gender, and Marriage in Afghan Tribal Society by Nancy Lindisfarne, as well as uh, her book with Richard Tapper in 2020 called Afghan Village Voices. And Jonathan Neal, also a huge climate activist, System Change, Not Climate Change. And his book is Fight the Fire, Green New Deals, and Global Climate Jobs. But he also has a book called A People's History of the Vietnam War, What's Wrong with America? But I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Erwin Chemerinsky, Nancy Lindisfarne, and Jonathan Neal. Thanks to executive producer Robert Brenner, producer-director-engineer Melissa Figueroa, 
and Kiana Williams in Master Control. You can listen to this and other archive shows as well as subscribe to the podcast at kpfk.org. Click Audio Archives and scroll down to Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. More information on programs and guests are on our Facebook page. You've been listening to Beneath the Surface on KPFK Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond, streaming live and archived at kpfk.org. Before we go, please, if you have not yet pledged your support for KPFK in this fund drive, do so now at 818-985-5735 or at kpfk.org. Thanks. I'm Susie Wiseman.